Okay. All right. Some fun to get started there. My name is Jordan, and I serve here as a pastor with Church 21, and uh, had the opportunity <laughs> of preaching uh, in NDG this morning. Um, we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is a book in the New Testament, the newer, if you almost have it, part of the Bible. It's a biography, an account of the life of Jesus. And our hope is that through this series on the book of Mark, that Jesus becomes more than just a figure on the page. He becomes a person that you encounter, a person you encounter. So we're going to be in Mark, um, the piece that was read, verse 21, through the end. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to be going basically phrase by phrase and invite you to join me in that. But I'm just going to pray and ask for God's help. Um, Lord, I thank you that uh, you are with us that there is power in your name and in your word. I pray that you would transform us through it. And uh, Lord, use these words by your spirit. Help me, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, Have any of you ever done one of those time budgets, time studies? It's not, yes, Dwight has. It's not like a financial budget. It's the same idea, sort of, but with your calendar, with your schedule, with your time. I've done this a few times in my life. You, you, know, you go back, you look over the, the past week, and you really pay attention, and you're asking this question, you're tracking, how did I use my time? And this can be really revealing, right? Because most of us feel quite busy, but then when we actually look back at all those hours, it's quite convicting, right? Why? Why is it convicting? Well, because we have all of these priorities in theory, but then in practice, things can turn out quite differently, right? Um, And if you were to follow somebody else around for a week, let's say you were to follow somebody else around for a week doing that, that very thing, even if you were to never ask them anything or they never told you anything, just by simply observing their life, you would have a very good idea about what they care about most, what they prioritize. And this is what we get to do with Jesus in this section of Mark. We get a few days in the life of Jesus, and we get to notice what he cares for, what he prioritizes, and in turn, as Jesus' disciples, that informs us, right? So that's what we're going to do today, but let's recap what we've seen so far. So at the beginning of Mark chapter 1, there's this person, John the Baptizer, John the Baptizer, and he prepares the way for Jesus. Then he is removed from the scene, and Jesus comes into the scene, proclaiming, it says in verse 14, the gospel of God. Now, what was that, again, gospel? It is the good news about who God is and what he's done. Ultimately, the gospel is about Jesus himself. He is the good news of God. Okay, so from there, um, Jesus, he is... Uh, baptized, goes into the wilderness, and then he, last week we saw he calls uh, disciples. He calls followers, people to come follow him. And um, one of the things that we remarked last week was that uh, unlike the Jewish teachers, rabbis of the time, what, what standards, what qualifications, what tests did Jesus have for coming into his uh, study, coming into his discipleship? What qualifications did he have for his disciples? That's a question for you. What were the qualifications? Anybody? Willing, Willing, that's it. Yeah. And so they didn't really have any qualifications other than just being willing, just saying yes to Jesus and no to themselves. They couldn't even read or write. 
right? And the same is true of us, right? What qualification do you need to start following Jesus? A vision, some books? No. Just say no to yourself and yes to Jesus, like these fishermen did. And in time, you will have experiences of the presence of God. You will want to learn more about the Jesus that you are apprenticing with. But it starts with just saying no to yourself, yes to him, like these disciples. And so off they go. Jesus, these are their new priority. This is Jesus' uh, discipleship training school. This is Jesus' DTS, if you would have it. This Jesus Seminary. What does a day in Jesus Seminary look like? Well, Mark's going to give us a snapshot into a few of them, and he doesn't give us much commentary. He's mostly just walking us through the scenes. We're just observing and seeing what Jesus cares and prioritizes, and that informs us. Okay, so that's where we start today. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum. They went into Capernaum. Capernaum would have been a small fishing village, maybe a few hundred people, And it was also the hometown of Jesus' disciples, the ones he's just called. They were were fishermen, right? And so what you see from this is Jesus starts his discipleship in his disciples' hometown. In other words, when we encounter Jesus, he doesn't just like bail us out of all of our locality and our circumstances, our friends and our context and our work. No, discipleship with Jesus starts by prioritizing your local context your friends, your family, Jesus wants to encounter them too. And in time, maybe he'll steer your direction differently. We'll see, right? But discipleship starts by prioritizing your local context. And then it says here, Jesus went into the synagogue. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. Now, what is uh, the synagogue? That was the place of Jewish Uh, Worship, Jesus was uh, Jewish, and the Sabbath is the day of Jewish rest and worship. So they're in in the synagogue on uh, the Sabbath. And verse 22, and they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. All right, there's something about Jesus' teaching that's standing out. Jesus isn't like the scribes. Well, who are the scribes? The scribes were the religious legal experts. And we actually have documents preserved to today from what the scribes would have taught at the time of Jesus, their writings. And we learned from it that they taught things like this. They'd say, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and here's a few comments of my own. In other words, it was just sort of like a rehashed commentary. They didn't have much authority themselves. It was delegated authority. But then along comes Jesus, and his teaching is astonishing. Why? Because he doesn't teach this way. He doesn't quote, you know, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this. He doesn't do that. No, he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. His teaching is fresh and, and, and striking. It has this striking consistency with all of God's previous revelation. And so it's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. This isn't just rehash commentary. Jesus is just, he isn't operating out of delegated authority. Jesus is teaching out of his own authority. It's the kind of authority that you would only expect from God himself. And that's precisely the point, isn't it? That Jesus is God come to reveal himself This is what he's beginning to do. God has come. And as disciples of Jesus, 
If we're to take a step back and say, well, what can we get? What are, what are the things we can get from this? And that is that we often fall into the habit, right, of prioritizing only other people's blogs, only other people's podcasts and their books and their teachings. That's all good and nice. But what was the priority for Jesus? The word of God, Jesus' word. That's our authority. That's what we need to be living off of. That's what we need to be pointing. Everything needs to be read through. Does that make sense? The word of God is our authority and Christ himself. All right, so Jesus, he's teaching with authority in the synagogue. And then in verse 23, it says, uh, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, what's an unclean spirit? You might be wondering what that is. Well, to understand this, we need to take like a giant step back. Christianity, God is spirit. And by him, he created all things, everything we exist, the chairs, me, you, the material world, everything that God creates. And he also creates in the spiritual world as well. And the spiritual world overlaps and intersects with our material world. And in the spiritual world, he's populated it with spiritual beings, invisible to us. They're non-material. Some of them, uh, in obedience to God, some of them have in turn rebelled against God, like us. And those spiritual beings that have rebelled against God are called unclean spirits or the demonic. That's what we see in this text. And I need to stress that they exist whether we believe it or not. It doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not. They're just there. And I really, I really get it, right? We live in a culture that, that chalks this up to a bunch of uh, superstitious, primitive nonsense, right? The sort of stuff that you find um, like in the 70s, like the, exorcist, the, the movie The Exorcist from the 70s. You know what I'm saying? But it's not. This is not nonsense. This stuff is, is so real. It's so real. And I hear often things like, well, I believe in science. I'm like, yes. I'm yes for science too. I'm yes for psychology. I'm yes for psychiatry. I'm yes for all of that stuff. But get this. There are limits on what science can explain. This past week, I was, I was running around near my neighborhood. And in the air in front of me, I could see all these, like, I don't know, like seeds from some cottonwood tree or something suspended and like well why are they suspended because the wind in the air and like you can't see the wind right the wind is invisible to my eye and yet you can see its effects it holding the seed in the air and the same is true of the spiritual realm you can't see it but you can see its effects like our eye is limited in seeing the wind it's invisible to us so to science is limited in seeing the spiritual realm. It's invisible to it. And of course, it can see its effects. It can label and diagnose things and, and put names on things. That's all good and nice and, and true and great. But it doesn't invalidate it, right? The spiritual world is real. And the spiritual world becomes obvious when this man with an unclean spirit walks in on Jesus' teaching. It says immediately. Don't miss that word immediately. It was like there was a clash in the spiritual realm. You know one of the ways you can discern something is demonic? Is when you see this kind of thing. There's immediate powerful aversion to the presence of God. Right? It might be like through the word of God being read. Teaching. Jesus was teaching at the time. It might be through song. It might be through somebody just plain filled with the Holy Spirit. And you get this reaction that you saw here. The demonic cries out. 
You know, I remember once, I've, I've seen this multiple times in my life. The first time I did, well, it struck me, so I'll tell it to you. I was attending a church in Oxford, and um, the person who was leading worship, much like you did, uh, came up, and it was right at the beginning, and they just began to sing out. And the moment they began to sing, Somebody towards the front, I hadn't seen before, just cried out right back at them and fell to the ground convulsing. I was like, pretty, I was like, oh my goodness, what just happened? And immediately, the elders started, did two things. One, they called 911, and they began to pray over the person. And I think what I saw there, I mean, I didn't hear the follow-up, but was that the presence of God had been encountered. There was this clash in the spiritual realm, and this is what we see in our text, all right? The man comes in with the unclean spirit, verse 23, and he cries out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? This creepy plural. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. The demon, he's surprised. He's like, oh, my goodness, the Holy One of God. What are you doing here? You're early. I thought you were supposed to come at the end of time, and here you are, oh, my. And you're human. You're a you're Jesus of Nazareth. This is going to mess us up. This messes up our plans. You hear the fear leeching out. He asks these two questions. What do you have to do with us? What do you have to do with us? Let's look at this question. I find it oddly comforting. What do you have to do with us? You see from this that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring, and the kingdom of this demoniac, the kingdom of darkness, they don't mix. They're like oil and water. They have nothing to do with each other. And this means of Jesus that Jesus isn't gray. Jesus is holy, good, and you can trust him. He has nothing to do with the powers of darkness. What do you have to do with us? And the second question, have you come to destroy us? You hear the fear coming out in this question. That's good. They, the demons should fear the name of Jesus. You hear the fear coming out. What, Jesus doesn't answer this question here. What do you have, um, have you come to destroy us? He doesn't answer the question. But had Jesus answered this question, what do you think the answer would have been? This is a question for you. Yeah? He doesn't jump to that quite. Maybe anybody else? Yeah. The truth to the demoniac, he does, he does do that. Have you come to destroy us? Yes. Yes. First John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared, that's Jesus, was what? To destroy the works of the devil. Praise God. This means that Jesus doesn't just deal with our wrongdoing. He doesn't just deal with the evil in our own hearts. He also deals with the evil out there, the evil that inflicts us, the spiritual darkness in our world. And this is what we see in this text. Verse 25, but Jesus <clears throat> rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. I love, I love this. It's so, it's so short and sweet and precise. There's no abracadabra, there's no spells that are cast and long drawn out process, incantations. No, none of that. It's just one 
line, right? Be silent and get out of him. And it's a done deal. <laughs> There's freedom in the name of Jesus. See, it wasn't in the power, the, the spells and the abracadabracas and the incantations, no. The power and the authority was not in the words or the process. The power and the authority was in the person. Jesus himself had come. He was there in the flesh, and he had authority. You see, it's not just then authority in his teaching. It is not just authority in the text. It's authority in the field as well. He doesn't just declare his authority from the front. He demonstrates his authority. You know what the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' authority was? You know what the ultimate demonstration was? His death, the cross, which is super counterintuitive, you think about. Like, how does the cross become the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' authority? Well, it's because at the cross, it appeared as if the evil in the sin in us was triumphant. It appeared as if the powers of darkness were triumphant and crushed Jesus. But the opposite was true. Because the very moment that appeared like the defeat of Jesus was actually the moment of his triumph. Why? Because it's at his death, at the cross, that Satan exerts his best weapon possible on Jesus, death, and yet death cannot hold Jesus. Death exhausts its power, and Jesus is raised back to life again. And if death can't hold Jesus, you know who else it can't hold? Those who are in Jesus. That's the power and the authority and victory of Jesus on the cross. And that's what we find as Christians. This is our lived experience, if you would have it. That life with Jesus never ends and that his power never runs out. Life with Jesus never ends. Jesus himself taught, I am the resurrection and the life. That though a man die, yet shall they live. You know what this means? Fear of death is gone. Satan can't use that weapon on us anymore. Death has become, like Augustine said, a gateway to life eternal. Life with Jesus never ends. And the power of Jesus never runs out. This is what Jesus has enabled through his death on the cross. The Holy One of God who takes our sin, makes us holy by his sacrifice so that his Holy Spirit can come in and empower and equip us with something we call the armor of God. So that what? So that we can stand firm and resist in the evil day. The power of Jesus never runs out. You can have life and you can have power in Jesus Christ. Him and him alone. And we're in that, you know what we're doing? We're, we're taking back hell. We're fighting back Satan, and it is awesome. It is amazing. We have nothing to fear. It's what Jesus does in this text, and it's what still happens today. We tend to think, oh, this is rare, weird, spooky, primitive stuff. This is not the case, guys. This past week in NDG, we saw this in our little prayer and worship gathering um, I, I spoke with the person after they gave me permission to share this story. This person, for over a month, had been experiencing extremely weird stuff in their life. It started with some drugs that they had done. They had done drugs, but this time it was different. They lost sense of reality. They were checked into a mental hospital, in, out. They couldn't perceive what was real, was, wasn't real. They were living in a state of constant fear. At one point, they saw their own hand, as if it wasn't their own. They're like, what is that? Oh, that's my own hand. Wrapping a cord around their neck. 
And their thought was, well, I don't want to die. What is happening? And they're in so much fear, so much hurt. And their girlfriend, their sister, they knew somebody who they're like, well, that's a spiritual person. They're desperate. They had been trying for a month different things. And so they called them, and that somebody was connected with our church. And so they went over, and they discerned, this is spiritual attack. And they began to pray, and a bunch of stuff started coming out. And they were going and going and going, and they got to the point where this Christian was exhausted. And they're like, I need help. And they called us in desperation. We're like, well, we have this prayer meeting in an hour. Why don't you come along? And so they did, and they came, and they brought their friend, and a bunch of us got to pray over them. And what you see in this text happened exactly. They convulsed, and they cried out, and there was freedom and healing in the name of Jesus Christ. So that the end of that prayer and worship night, that individual who walked in not a believer ended with his arms raised worshiping Jesus as king. Healing and freedom in the name of Jesus is possible today. It's so good. That was Tuesday. On Wednesday, I met up with that individual. <laughs> they were so thankful. They said, over, over a month, it's like I wasn't myself. And now I'm sitting here in my right mind, praise God. I said, like, you have no like, experience of this kind of thing. Would you consider yourself of Christianity? Like, what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself now a follower of Jesus? To which they said, definitely. Definitely. What else do they have? This is so real, guys. God wants to bring freedom and healing today. This is possible in the name of Jesus, and it's only his name that can bring that healing and that freedom. Don't try and do this on your own. Don't try and take on Satan by yourself. Call out to Jesus. And if this is you, if this is you, if you think you're under some demonic oppression or attack, we want to pray for you. I get it. Not everything is demonic. Many things are not demonic. But if you sense that's what's happening in your life, we want to help you discern that and pray for healing in that. And that could even be in uh, in our discussion time afterwards. That discussion time is not for no reason. (laughs) Um, We take that stuff seriously. Okay, so Jesus did too. And he commands this demon to leave. And then in verse 27, it says this, And they were all amazed, and they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere and throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus' fame spreads. It's his fame that spreads. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about Church 21. It is about Jesus in his name and being made great in this city. Let's not forget that. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So we see this discipleship training has moved from synagogue now to the home. Synagogue would have ended about noon. And so it's time for, for lunch at one of the family the disciples' homes. Verse 30, And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came, he took her by the hand, and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Okay. So what we see from this now is that Jesus doesn't just have authority over the spiritual world. He also has authority over the material world. This illness is healed. How does he do it? He takes Peter's mother-in-law's hand and he lifts her up. Who needs this here? 
Who feels like they've been knocked down? It might be knocked down by illness. It might be knocked down by the season we're in, depression, isolation, the rest of it, a death, whatever it is. Jesus extends a hand to you, and he wants to lift you up. If that's you, we want to pray for you after. And what does she do after she's healed? The text says, and she began to serve them. She serves. <laughs> and we might think, oh, this is like super, you know, misogynistic or whatever, but we really need to take off our cultural lenses. This is not what is happening at all, okay? You remember when God calls Abraham? He calls Abraham and he says what? You are blessed to be a blessing. And the same is true when God calls us, that we are saved to serve, that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. Serving then is part of our new identity and being a follower of Jesus. Jesus himself says it later in Mark, Mark 10, 45. It's like a linchpin of this gospel. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Well, why did Jesus serve? Why do we serve? Why do we serve? We serve because Jesus has first served us. And he served us in the ultimate way. I mean, he hasn't just healed us from some disease. He's healed us from the ultimate disease, the disease of the evil in our own hearts. And so our serving, our identity as servants is nothing but a response to him, to him having first served us. Practically, service as Christians, there's, there's lots of needs within our own church, without the church. Now with all of these locations, we have needs like music, building our music team in the different locations, or greeting. I saw a couple of people as I came in. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, our kids' ministry, you're going to need to do a background check for that. But these kinds of things, taking care of our facilities, you know, I, I, was, I joked this morning, I think it takes more faith to clean the bathroom at the building we meet in NDG than actually standing up here at the pulpit. Um, but Jesus calls us to serve. That's one of our identities. It's within the church. If you don't know what you can do, just ask uh, Dwight or any of the other leaders, and they would be happy uh, to tell you there's lots of needs. Uh, without the church, outside of the church, there are so many needs. There's so many hurting people. Who has Jesus called you to? Ask, you know, what, are, what has he given me? What's my time, my talent, and my treasure? And where does that meet those needs? And it could just be that you need to pray and ask God to give you the courage and step out and take that risk. And if you don't know, we'd love to help you discern that. Each one of our locations is connected with local serving opportunities or we're building those relationships so that we don't just talk about service. We don't just say, I've, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. No, we are servants. It's not just an Instagram thing. It's a reality thing. Does that make sense? Let's keep going. So she began to serve, and then that evening at sundown, verse 32, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So notice here in this text, uh, verse 32, it distinguishes between those who are sick and they need healing, like Peter's uh, mother-in-law, and those who are oppressed by demons, they needed deliverance, like the man with the unclean spirit. Now, one of the things we can do wrong is we chalk everything up 
to be demonic, right? I have a headache, it's a demon. I broke my leg, the demon pushed me, or whatever. You know, we've, we've kind of seen, some of us have, have encountered that before. On the other hand, we say nothing is demonic. It's all illness, it's all this or all that. And, and that's just, that's nothing but a bland materialism, guys. Christianity is far more nuanced than that. Christianity offers far more explanatory power of what is happening than that. See, imagine you come across a tree that's, that's fallen sideways, right? You can suppose a few things. What affected this tree to cause it fall sideways? Maybe it was the wind that came along strong, blew it sideways. Maybe the tree had an illness and it caused it to be weak and it broke and fell sideways. Or maybe it's some combination of both of those things. And if you use this metaphor in the wind in it, if the wind is a metaphor for the spiritual world, you see what I'm getting at here. And so the question then becomes, how do we differentiate? How do we discern? What are biblical ways we can discern between something that is illness or demonic? One of them I already mentioned. It comes out right here. The demonic in the presence of God reveals itself. There's that clash, right? Another thing we see, we'll get to this in Mark chapter 9. There's a young boy, and anytime he comes close to fire, a source of fire or a body of water, it says the demons try and destroy him. So sometimes the demonic reveals itself by trying to destroy, by trying to take life. So they might be a clash. There's this this purpose of destruction. And then the third thing here would be for us, and that is there is the gift of discernment of spirits. Does anyone remember what that was when we preached on that a few months ago, what the gift of discernment of spirits is? Somebody make a go at it. What is that? Jojo. Somebody help Jojo. Shayla. <laughs> Vidya. Oh, come. My friends. Okay, the podcast, Equip for War. You can go back and find it. Um, but the idea was um, a supernatural ability to discern between the nature and the source of spirits. The nature and the source of spirits. So is this emotional or physical or spiritual or some mix of those things? These are all things that can help us discern. And the really important thing I say here is that if you are unsure, do not go up to somebody and start commanding this spirit and that spirit and this spirit. This can be so damaging to the person and fear-inducing. Man, if you don't know, just pray for healing. Ask God to reveal if there's anything more and trust that he will. You know, so often what people need is not some demon to be exorcist, exercised from them. It's just a steady diet of prayer and word in the community. And that can work wonders on a, a sick soul. It's their sanctification. All right. What happens next in Jesus' discipleship training? Verse 35. Rising early in the morning. This is the next day. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. All right, from this we get another glimpse of what Jesus' priorities would have been. Jesus, of course, he's surrounded by a multitude of needs, big needs, sick people, people that he could heal. And you can only imagine the people from the night before telling their friends, right, and who would have showed up the next morning, and yet where's Jesus? Nowhere to be found. Where? In a desolate place, a desolate place, in solitude and silence. And we tend to think, well, Jesus was God, right? He could just go, 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 go. 
we tend to think this ourselves as well. We can just go, 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 go. Right? We have these huge lists. We get this perception. There is so much work for us to do. I cannot. I have no time. There's no way I can stop and rest and pray and just be with Jesus. I felt that way so many times. And yet, what are we doing when we do this? Right? What are we doing? Are we trying to be everywhere and do everything for everyone? Everywhere, everything, everyone, do it all? Like, are we trying to be God? Jesus, who's actually God, actually God, and he doesn't what? He doesn't compromise on his communion and his enjoyment with the Father and the Spirit. And it's actually out of that place of communion and enjoyment that he does his ministry. And if that's true of Jesus, it should be true of us. If Jesus needed to pray with his Father, so do we need to pray and be with our Father. Prayer is our communion. It's our relationship. It's our time of delight. It's how we know God. And it's out of that place that we operate out of. It's out of that place that we do ministry. Of course, by ministry, I don't just mean this kind of thing. I mean like whatever God has called you to do in your life. It's out of that place we operate and are effective. You ever wonder why our demonic deliverance isn't nearly as effective as Jesus is? I mean, Jesus can just command. It's like, be silent and get out, and it's done. Why isn't ours nearly as effective? Jesus, his disciples, they wonder this too. They actually ask this in that passage in Mark 9. You know what Jesus says? He says, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. That's right, prayer. You want the spirit of the Lord to be upon you in power? Spend time regularly with him in prayer. That's our enjoyment. That's our effectiveness as Christians. If it was a priority for Jesus, it should be a priority for us as well. Practically, I'll say a few things. Prayer uh, takes time. I get it. It's, it's <laughs> like anything, like growing a muscle. Start simple, start small. You're building a relationship, right? Don't try and be a monk right out of the gate. I always tell people that. Just, just do what you can in prayer before God. And he hears you, he honors you. You're not trying to impress him, right? So start simple, start small. And if you've done that, take an audit of your prayer life. What, what are you praying for? Next time you pray, take, pay attention to it. Are you praying just for yourself in like the direct circle of influence that you're connected with? Is that what you're praying for? You know, bless, bless me, bless my mom, and bless my dog, and help me on my test. Pray wider. Jesus calls us to so many things. You can pray the Psalms. Those are great templates for prayer, poetry that is prayer. <laughs> Study the Lord's Prayer. There's a, another way. I was speaking to somebody this week. They said, you know, how can I grow in my prayer? There's an app. You know, on the, the, the YouVersion app of the Bible, there's all those little plans. There's one called Teach Us to Pray in 21 Days with Pete Craig. Okay, look that up. It was great. I really enjoyed that. So start small, simple, take an audit. What about this silence and solitude stuff? Jesus goes away to desolate places. This is something I built into my schedule uh, over a year ago. And I haven't been completely consistent, but most months I'll be able to get out. And how I do this is I spend a day alone. I go biking or hiking uh, or to a spa or something like this. And it's an opportunity for me to, to commune with God in silence and just, just talk about what's happened in the past month. What am I looking forward to? And it's been so helpful. 
Man, it's out of times like that. I can say, you know what? I know what I'm about. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm going. I know who my hope is in. It's in Christ, and I feel grounded. I know, like, it is so helpful to spend time of silence and solitude with God, and we would encourage you to do that as well as disciples of Jesus. So Jesus does that. He's in this desolate place, and it says in verse 36, uh, in Simon, that was one of the disciples, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, And they found him and said to him, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. Everybody's looking for you. The funny thing about this is we often actually want people to say this to us, right? Like, everybody's looking for you. You're so needed, right? Anybody read that book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work? (laughs) The Art of Being Indispensable. Well, unlike that, Jesus doesn't want the attention. You actually see this throughout the text. I don't know if you noticed it as we read, but it's, it's there. Verse 25, what happens when the demon identifies him? Be silent, come out. Then in verse 34, when he's doing many, he says he does not permit the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. And then here, you have him going to a desolate place, avoiding the crowds, also in verse 45. Why would he do that? Why would, the disciples are like, this is baffling. Why would he retreat away from all of these, you know, possibilities? He's not out networking with the Caesars and the Herods of this world. He's not out pursuing the rich and the famous. He's not out to build his social media following. Why? Why was Jesus this way? Well, one is that he was controlling the timing of his death. Gospel of John, my hour is not yet come. He's waiting for his moment to reveal himself. But I think there's a deeper reason here. Anybody know what that deeper reason is? Here, I think it's this. See, when Jesus finally goes public, the reason he is is what? To save us, to reconcile us to God, to bring God glory. In other words, Jesus isn't public for the sake of himself. He isn't ever seeking anybody's attention. He doesn't pursue anybody's applause. No, At all, never. Rather, he lived wholly under the affirmation of the Father alone. In other words, Jesus was practicing what he preached, where he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. In other words, when we do things to be seen by others, when we turn our own horns... (laughs) We're getting, we're, we're getting the only applause we will ever receive, and we're somehow diminishing the God-glorifying aspect of what we have just done. And Jesus, of course, on the other hand, he never toots his own horn. He lived without people's applause. He went much of his ministry unnoticed, ministering to unnoticed people. And I want to ask this of us. Can we do that? Is our faith strong enough to do that, to do the work of a notice ministry to unnotice people? Is the affirmation of the Father, you are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased, is that enough for you? You know, I actually think this is a plight in the evangelical church. I do. That too many leaders are pursuing higher and bigger and better positions in areas of influence, justifying themselves by saying, this will give me a bigger platform for Jesus. But you know what? 
This, we're working in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't need your bigger platform. If he wants you on that platform, he'll put you on that platform. You do not need to pursue that platform. What, what then do you need to pursue? Seek first the kingdom of God. Pursue the humble seat, the low seat, and that is where you will find him in his fullness, in all of his humility, in all of his love. You see, let's just be content, not doing ministry to the rich only and the famous, but to the poor and the vulnerable and the weak and the unnoticed people of this world. They matter to Jesus. They might not matter to many, but they matter to Jesus, and he's the one, and his opinion matters most. And so can we do these unnoticed things? Why do we do these unnoticed things? I love this quote by Zach Eswine. Because... Being remembered by God means we no longer fear being forgotten by the world. Why do we do the unnoticed to the unnoticed? Because being remembered by God means we no longer fear being forgotten by the world. Is this your priority? Are you fame shy like Jesus was? What are your priorities? Let's see more of what Jesus' priorities were verse 38 <clears throat> everyone is looking for you 38 and he said to them let us go into the next towns that we may preach there also for this is why i came and he went throughout all of galilee preaching in synagogues and casting out demons <clears throat> okay so what were jesus's priorities well like we already saw it wasn't fame i mean look at the people he spent it with the weird the scary the smelly the unnoticed people fame wasn't what was it says here he's preaching is preaching, getting the gospel, the message out, repent and believe the gospel, sharing Jesus was Jesus's priority. Okay, so sharing Jesus is the priority. It's essential. But what does it mean for what he did in the rest of these verses, right? The serving, the deliverance, the healing, is that essential? Yes, Jesus cares not just for your soul, but for your body too. They're both essential. Both word and deed are essential. But preaching, sharing Jesus is the priority. Well, why? Well, because all of the serving that we do, all of the healing that we do, it points us back to Jesus. They're signposts that point us back to Jesus who has arrived to rescue and heal. And it's announcing that, announcing him. That's the way that people can encounter the gospel. That's the way that people can receive healing. That's the way that people can receive deliverance. And so they're both, a prior, they're both essential, but sharing Jesus becomes the priority because it's just the ordering of things. How does this translate into our priorities as disciples? Of Jesus. Remember, I started with this thing of time budgeting, looking back at how we use our time and our hours and that gap between theory and practice, and it can be so convicting, and I felt that way before too. I'm not going to take us through a whole complicated list of things, but to say notice the priorities that we have already seen, our identity as servants, blessed to be a blessing, sharing the gospel, serving others. I mean, all of this stuff, times of silence and solitude in prayer with God. That's got to be in there somewhere. And if you're struggling to figure out how is this going to work, we'd be happy to help you. We have a priority-based time management study that's on Right Now Media we can connect you with. Any of our leaders would be happy to sit down with you and go through, okay, 
What is your schedule? How do you use your time? How can we arrange it so that you're living out fully your identity as a disciple of Jesus? And that the most important things don't just get, you know, pushed to the side. All right, that's very practical. But let's, let's get back into our text. And we have a final scene here. I'll cover more briefly. I'll, I'll read 40 through the end, right through. <clears throat> and so Jesus... Uh, no. And a leper came to him, that's Jesus, yes, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what uh, for your cleansing, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news. So Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him there. So here you see, again, Jesus is retreating away from the crowds to desolate places. Uh, we also see, again, the healing of an illness immediate, Jesus' power over the material realm. But I want to point out two things as we come to a close here. Uh, but first, uh, what, what is leprosy? Leprosy, we do not get. We don't get leprosy. It is a terrible uh, disease. It can start either by, uh, it's basically your nerves begin to die. You no longer have feeling in your extremities. And you, you basically curl up uh, from the outside in. It's a slow, deadening process. Or it can sometimes express itself in the skin with pores that open up and bleed and stink and they cover your whole body to the point that you're actually uh, unrecognizable. And it's contagious. And so people who had leprosy, even today, would have to live outside of cities, in quarantine, in a place where no one else would get it, right? And so in a way, these, these lepers, they were exiles, right? They were this is something we know, right, from COVID. We've all spent a few months in quarantine. Imagine spending the rest of your life in quarantine. The isolation, the loneliness, the sense of social rejection that you would feel. And meanwhile, the rest of the world carries on outside. This is what these lepers would have felt. And you have to go around yelling, you know, unclean, unclean, so that people get out of the way so nobody would inadvertently bump into you and get leprosy too. And then what do we see here in this text? Verse 41, Jesus what? He stretched out his hand and he touched him. He touched him. You see what's so shocking about this? Not only does Jesus touch him, the leprosy doesn't Come on, Jesus. Jesus is not contaminated by that impurity. Rather, this man is, is, takes on the purity of Jesus. The reverse occurs. How? How can this be? Well, it's the identity of Jesus we saw earlier. He is the Holy One of God. He was the source of all goodness. And so no impurity could take on Jesus. Jesus could only take on that impurity. And his touch made him clean. And it's the same is true of us. The cross is what enables Jesus to reach out. And his touch is what makes you and I whole, clean before him. He cleans us. 
And what happens as a result of that is his holiness can flow in us. His divine spirit enters in and makes like it were our bellies rivers of living water. That's imagery, metaphorical speech for the Holy Spirit to flow out and bless in touch and bring healing and deliverance to others. This is our call. This is our ministry as believers. God's touch makes us whole. And the other thing is that I want to bring out is that we get this impression, right? We get the impression that our sickness, we get the impression that our sin, that our shame is somehow a nuisance for God. Or worse yet, it's not just a nuisance, it's actually repulsive to him. And yet, what do we see here in this text? Jesus is not repulsed by our sin and our shame and our illness. No, he draws near and he touches and he heals. And that same heart of compassion that we see here in the verse, he had pity, Jesus still has. That same compassion Jesus had then, he has today for you here and now. Do you hear that? Jesus wants to heal you. He has compassion on you. You need only to pray and ask that he would touch you with but a bit of his presence. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are here. I thank you that your spirit is with us and that you are eager to move and bring healing and blessing and wholeness in our lives. I pray for anybody here who is struggling. Lord, that in their struggle, in their sense of being knocked down or their hurt or their pain or their sense of that you would be repulsed by them, Lord, that you would encounter them, that you would touch them in Jesus' name, that they would cry out to you and they would feel your touch. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. And I pray that you'd be moving through our worship, that you'd be moving uh, in our giving, and that you'd be moving in our discussion and prayer through the end of today. I ask this in Jesus' name, the one who brings life and the one in whose name there is power. Amen.